On June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled 5-4 to four, requiring all states to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples and to recognize same-sex marriages that were validated or validly performed in other jurisdictions. Supreme Court Justices Roberts, Scalia, Thomas, and Alito were the four dissenting voices in that vote. In their dissenting opinions, Justice Roberts suggested that the court's opinion would lead to, quote, consequences for religious liberty. Thomas mentioned that the ruling would, quote, threaten religious liberty. And Justice Alito said that the court's ruling would be used to attack the beliefs of those who disagree with same-sex marriage, who, quote, will, be, will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. Pretty prophetic. On the, surface of, uh, uh, on the surface, one might think, and I think especially in Wyoming, and I, I, I lament over this, oh well, who cares? Let people love who they want to love. However, beloved, we have got to wake up. No thoughtful person is arguing that people cannot love who they want to love. The argument on the surface was over a changing, right, a 6,000-year-old definition of marriage. No small thing, I would add. 6,000 years of history, just erase it. Fill in some new words in your Webster's Dictionary. But at its core, it is a direct and ongoing assault on that which is the celebration of God-given gender. Riding the wave of those prophetic words of the four dissenting Supreme Court justices who warned of attacks on religious liberty, the LGBT political machine has captured the world with their claims of systemic bigotry. On July 20th, 2005, just 10 years prior to the United States, Canada signed in the Federal Civil Marriage Act, making same-sex marriage legal. And on January 7th of this year, just a few days ago, Canada has begun to enforce a new law titled C4, which makes it illegal, illegal for anyone to counsel anyone concerning any gender confusion. This morning, right now, in fact, churches all across Canada are purposefully preaching on biblical sexuality and marriage. And for the first time since Canada's independence, it is illegal for a pastor to do so. In fact, doing so is now punishable by two to five years in prison. This attack is not just aimed at religious liberty, though. Its aim is much higher. As I mentioned, C4 makes it illegal for anyone. That includes parents or children to counsel anyone concerning converting their gender from one to another. The goal, we ask, an attempt to dignify all sexual desires as something to be celebrated and practiced. Make no mistake, if you do not align with this ideology, you will feel the heat from the government, the schools, and your employers. Unless we be tempted to think that this ideology will stop at our northern border, we should know that since the approval of same-sex marriage in the United States, 
More and more populist politicians like former President Donald Trump continue to cozy up to the LGBT movement. Why does this matter? And why is it so alarming? By example, the recent Canadian Bill C-4 passed without a single, listen here, beloved, dissenting vote from the conservatives. It passed with 100% approval. As we continue through 1 John today, let us remember that the Antichrist spirit that the Apostle John said was in the world in chapter 2, verse 18, is never asleep. Satan is always busy, is he not working within the governments of the world, manipulating them to allow for the practice of anything that is anti-God? We have in our country experienced great freedom to come into worship and to not have a government come in and tell us that we cannot teach on sexuality or any other issue that might be anti-God. But I fear, beloved, that those times are changing. Just as Canada has moved forward, we are as a nation moving forward with this idea that we hate the idea of truth. We hate the idea of anything God has prescribed in his word. It is nothing short of Antichrist times, and although we have enjoyed this season, we must remember as believers, this is what the church has always faced. There has been no other time in the history of the church in 2,000 years that there was a 200-year period carved out where we could worship the way we wanted to worship. And beloved, I fear to say that there's a day coming when we will stand just as those ministers in Canada are this morning. And we will have to preach things that may cause us to be put in prison. When former President Barack Obama ran for president of the United States in 2008, he ran opposed to same-sex marriage. Seven years later, he celebrated the Supreme Court's ruling. And now many conservatives who have forgotten the warning of the four Supreme Court justices are no longer opposed to that which is ushering in the loss of religious liberty. They are popularists. They just need as many votes as possible, and it does not matter what is conservative or what is not. They have bowed the knee to the social justice God. Beloved, being popular is a powerful tool, and the enemy of our human soul, Satan, knows how to use it, right? He wields it well. Many in the so-called church in America and around the world have been deceived by popularism, the fear, right, of being labeled or even outright rebellion is going on towards his word. And it has caused many churches to accept sexual perversion in the institution of the church. In my study, a quick search revealed that the practice of same-sex marriage or transgenderism is now common within many denominations in the U.S., do your own search, and I've boiled it down, and there are certainly different sects within each one of these denominations, but just be alarmed at this. It's not just going to, the attack is not going to come against biblical Christianity just from the outside, but many, many churches have already bowed the knee, including 
Anglican churches, Baptist churches, Catholic churches, Methodist churches, Pentecostals, the Reformed Church, this, this month on January 1, split in half over this very issue. Reformed churches have bowed the knee. First Christian disciples of Christ went this way a long time ago. The Presbyterian USA specifically and the Mennonite Church USA are all those who have just said, however you feel, come on in. These churches would do well to study the church at Corinth who received this warning from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived is the imperative in this this set of verses. And we have one imperative in our set of verses. We'll get to it here in just a few moments. And but uh, it is no uh, no doubt in it that there is a commonality that it is do not be deceived. Paul, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Beloved, do not be deceived. Do not get pulled in. Do not waver off the path, right? Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, listen here, will inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, the word of God could not be any clearer than it is about the destiny of those who claim to be Christians but practice sin. The ones who practice what God calls sins, even if they identify themselves as Christians, belong to the devil. The ones who practice the righteousness of Jesus belong to Christ. Beloved, eternity with God is a tale of two practices. The practice of sin and the practice of righteousness. In the previous paragraph, which we went through last week, we observed that the apostle reminds the churches in and around Ephesus to purify themselves. Just that that very note in itself, right? Let's us know that there is right and there is wrong in the eyes of God. What is there to purify if anything goes? Purify yourselves in light of the fact that that Jesus Christ is coming a second time and in the last time when he rode in on a donkey, humble, this time he will not ride in on a donkey. He will come on a white horse and King of Kings will be on his thigh and Lord of Lords and he comes to judge sin. As we approach our text today, we see that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John, and he begins to describe the difference between those who call themselves Christians and those who are Christians. Verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Beloved, the first three verses of this paragraph, like a retracting rubber band, (laughs) 
pull us straight back into the context of the first century church in and around Ephesus. The churches had begun to be influenced by Antichrist teachers who were attacking the two natures of Christ. That is that Christ was fully God and fully man. They acknowledged Christ's deity, but not his humanity. That was because they believed and taught that all flesh was evil. Nothing good could come from the flesh. We would say amen to that, right? It's just a little twist of the truth, right? And because nothing good could come from the flesh, the flesh must be evil, and therefore Jesus can't be flesh. Well, it creates a problem, does it not, for our soteriology? We needed somebody like us, as the writer of Hebrews would tell us, right? We needed someone who'd suffered and, and been tempted just like we had, but yet, unlike Adam, did not sin. And yet he needed to be punished on a cross so that our sin, your sin, my sin, could go to a cross and be imputed upon him that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had to come in the flesh. And so dangerous was this little twist off of doctrine, this little bit of thing, that John doesn't say, well, those Corinthians, they're kind of wrong. Those dualists, they're, they're kind of wrong. He doesn't say that, beloved. He calls them anti-Christs. A couple of weeks ago, as people often do, they come, and I'm certain we probably have some visiting here this morning, and this was, if this was you, I, I don't apologize. I, I just know that we had a family get up and haste and move on out. And uh, on their way out, they told one of our ushers that we didn't come here to listen about doctrine. We didn't come here to listen to somebody bash on another church. And I thought, how ironic. Here we are in the middle of a text that is warning people about hell for wrong doctrine, and you leave because we talk about doctrine. Wow. That's the church world we live in. The teaching that all flesh was evil had led to, in that first century church, a live and let live attitude. That's the attitude they had. I don't want to hear about this doctrine stuff. Why are we telling other people they might be wrong? Maybe because the Bible says they are. But that attitude was allowing people to identify as Christians, but practice sin. This, of course, made them to look like the rest of the world. In response to this, John has already written, and I could name out many verses, but I just pulled some together for our reference and to, to bring our minds back into the context that uh, we are not to look like the world. First John 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. First John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk, that is, live in the darkness, right? Live however we would like. We lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 2, 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Beloved, I am probably like you. I I want to love everybody I come across and, and I wish in, in, in my flesh, so don't hear me say this as a, as a pastor theologically, but I wish in my flesh that 
that doctrine didn't matter. I wish that we could just be universalists and get together with the United Unitarians here in town this morning and just celebrate everybody's lifestyle and, and go on thinking that everybody is going to heaven. But the problem is, right, my Bible will not allow me to get there. I love people. I, I, I want to see people spend eternity in heaven not being eternally punished. But I, I must stay true to what has God said. We must, as a church, stay true to what has God said. Nothing new that we experience that in these days. These people that were identifying as Christians but living like the rest of the world had, as we have already studied, went from, out from the real church, and they were calling themselves Christians. They were calling themselves Christians. John has been writing to affirm those who remain in the church, affirming that they were, in fact, genuine Christians if they had the anointing of the Holy Spirit in their lives, their doctrine of the Father and the Son was correct, and they lived righteous lives. As we consider what verses 4, 5, and 6 say, a principle becomes clear is the principle of practice. And that practice goes something like this. That which we practice reveals who we are. We understand that, don't we? If you've ever had somebody in your life who maybe is supposed to be very loving towards you, but their actions are not very loving, and they often say things like, I love you, I care for you, but they never show up to you anything in your life. They don't come to important events. They don't evidence. They don't practice anything that says that they love you. Pretty soon, we understand the hypocrisy of that. And over time, those words, I love you, they're not by, backed up by practice. And because of that, we understand that their love is a lie, right? It doesn't mean we respond in hatred, but we just understand the truth. What we practice is who we are. Jesus revealed the principle of fake love or hypocrisy in Luke chapter 6. You can turn there. We're going to spend a little bit of time in there if you want. We're going to start at verse 45. If not, I'm going to have these verses on the screen for you. Jesus revealed this principle of fake love, hypocrisy, this, this idea, a tale of two practice, practices. He said this in verse 45, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. We understand this, do we not? When we get upset with somebody who will not practice what they say, we might say to them, you ought to practice what you... All right, I'll try it again just because I can tell you didn't have enough coffee. You ought to practice what you preach, right? He goes on in verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? wants to pause for just a second and realize that this word do in our verse is the same word that is getting translated as practice six different times in the paragraph that we're studying today. So we could understand Jesus is saying this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not practice what I say? It can't be, right? That's the rhetoric. It's impossible. Don't call yourself a Christian and not do Christian things and say you are a Christian. He 
Herein lies the principle. Jesus had a lot of people following him, did he not? Things have not really changed 2,000 years later. There are lots of people say that they follow Christ, lots of people in our nation, and you can do studies on this, uh, uh, that would identify themselves as Christians but have no uh, earthly view or vision of what it looks like to live that out. So there were people right then with Jesus doing miracles, (laughs) feeding 5,000, raising the dead. They were following Christ along. They would, in our world, be called Christians, right? Those who would follow Christ. But they did not belong to him. And how do we know? Because they did not practice what Jesus said. Beloved, Jesus applied the same principle as John does here in our text, the principle of practice. And Jesus, just like John, describes two types of people who were practicing different lifestyles and were identifying as Christ followers or Christians. Jesus continues on by telling them a tale of two practices in chapter 6, verse 47 and 48, saying, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on a rock. And when the flood occurred and the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. He had done what he had said. The first tale is a tale of a professed Christ follower who not only heard what Jesus said, he practiced what Jesus said. The reference to the flood is certainly in our minds is a reference to God's coming judgment on humanity for their sin. You've been in the 119 class following either online or you're coming in the morning. You will have just got through Noah and what did God use to judge the sin of the earth, but a flood. The one who hears Jesus and practices what he said is the one who will survive the judgment of God. That not what Noah did. It was not Noah's work that saved him. It was the grace that God gave him. But the grace that God gave him allowed him to listen to that which God had told him, build an ark. <laughs> Judgment is coming. The second tale that we find in these verses with Jesus is a tale of a professed Christ follower who also heard what Jesus said, but went on to practice whatever they wanted, Jesus, uh, whatever they wanted to. Jesus said of this person in verse 49, but the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. We look back to 1 John 3, 4, 5, and 6, we see a tale of these two practices playing out in the church. The Holy Spirit inspired John to say, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he, verse 5, that's Jesus, appeared in order, listen here, to take away sin. So we see the purpose of Jesus' arrival, right, is to take away sin. And I want to be clear in here this morning that God in a future day is going to judge all of our sin. Our sin is deserving of eternal punishment in the lake of fire, but his mercy is more. I'm going to sing that. 
as we get ready to leave today. Being a well-dispositioned person who practices what Jesus taught will not save us from the coming flood of the judgment from God. No following of the law, no, no doing what your parents said as a kid or following a catechism or checking the boxes of Christianity or whatever you might fill in the blank is going to save you. It's not what Jesus is talking about here in, in Luke uh, chapter 6, right? The idea is that there has been a regeneration in the heart of a person just like Noah. It says Noah found grace. Because he found grace, God saved him. And he did the work of building the ark. Not only had he found eternal salvation by his faith, but he found a natural salvation by his obedience. So those good practices will not save us. Only being born again. Only being born again. Having the Spirit of God in our lives is the living proof that God gave to sinners. It is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that God promised to all who recognize their desperately hopeless sinful condition. Repent and cry out to God for salvation in Christ from God's coming judgment. And why cry out to Christ? Because He came to take sins away. Friends, I want to talk to you. I know many of you probably, if I had you raise your hands, grew up in the church or some form of the church and you were probably taught and you probably came to a lot of different church services and and this is what I have experienced as a pastor. I came to faith in my mid-20s. I didn't go to church uh, as a kiddo. And so my testimony is, is pretty clear because I was just living for the world one day and I repented and lived for Christ the next day. And it was pretty easy to see. But for many of us, we grow up in the church and uh, it gets a little bit confusing. But I want to encourage you this, that the language of the New Testament affirms that, that you will not just go on doing nice things for other people. It is not about just doing what Jesus said. You must have a regenerate nature inside of you. You must have the Spirit of God. You will not be confused, not one iota. Most people that I talk to that have grown up in the church and they've gone along and they were raised the right way, um, they will tell you, they'll have some kind of story that sounds like this. At some point in my walk in high school or, or in college, I made, you'll often hear this, Statement, my faith, what? My own. And at that point in time, their lives changed. It went from doing some duty that I had to do because my parents said I should do it, right, to a desire to want to worship and serve God and be holy and righteous in his eyes in all that I do. So Christ has come in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin is a is a marker. It helps us that are really digging in and studying what's going on here in 1 John. This is almost like a quick jab in the face to those false teachers who are saying that Christ did not come in the flesh. He couldn't have, or he would not, uh, or he would have had sin. And, and so John is affirming, yes, he did come, and he came to take away sins. And listen up, there's no sin in him. In verse 6, John's right, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. 
These clauses often shake up Christians, and they should. John is not saying that a Christian never sins. In fact, he has already identified himself as a sinner in 1 John 1.9 when he said this, if we, that includes him, right, confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is not saying here that if you are a genuine, spirit-filled, believing Christian that you will never sin. That is not what he is after here. It's clear that if we sin, when we sin, we should confess that sin uh, to the Father that we might uh, receive forgiveness. As a matter of fact, he would even go on to say there in in very similar verse, right, that if somebody says they don't sin, that's a sure sign, beloved, that they are not a believer. It's a sure sign. We know that we're going to have a wrestling match with sin in our lives. So what does he mean when he says no one who abides in him sins and no one who sins knows him? We get tipped off to that answer when we read the words who abides. The word abide is synonymous with other English words like tolerate or accept or consent. Also, this whole paragraph is a tale of two practices, is it not? The word practice is used six times in these verses, and we add the two commands to abide in Christ, we understand that John is not talking about that occasional sin, but rather present tense, ongoing, willful sin in a professed Christian's life. This reality is easier to see in the Greek than in the English, and I encourage you, there's a lot of tools that you can dig into and get a better grasp of the Greek New Testament that's behind those English words uh, that we have in our English New Testaments. And as you do and as you learn, you would see that this word to sin is hamartano, and it is found in the present tense, active voice, indicative mood. So let me help you parse this. Present tense, this sin is right now going on. Active, it's actively going on. There is no desire for change, right? And indicative, I am going to hold on to it. I'm going to keep on doing it, right? That's what's being said of here. What does this mean? We could understand this verse to say, no one who abides in him is currently sinning with an attitude to keep doing so. No one who keeps on sinning has seen him or knows him. The parallel verse that expounds upon verses 6 is verse 9. You can hop down there in your text. And it makes this very clear. Here's the clarification. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed, that is the Holy Spirit, abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Beloved, if there is not a wrestling match going on in you over sin, if you can't identify sin, if you are not bothered by uh, people who teach a different gospel or, or um, uh, anything else doctrinally in the church, if nothing bothers you, there, there's something wrong inside of you. The Spirit of God has written this book to us. He affirms it. He allows us to understand what is right and what is wrong. 
Beloved, the truth of genuine Christianity is that real Christians will not keep on with an attitude of ongoing sin. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, God himself, lives inside the Christian. Because of that, the Christian cannot keep on sinning. They cannot. I have four professed Christian friends in my life who deeply wrestle with same-sex attraction. I don't understand that wrestling. I can't identify with it. I've never struggled with that. But one thing I can identify is that I certainly struggle with opposite-sex attraction. And the heart that seeks to do anything outside of what God desires for us in sexual union and marriage is sin. And I can't identify with that. One of them has cut off all communication with me. He is a dear friend. He was in my wedding, and he purchased and signed for me. I just saw it the other day, as a matter of fact, and I was, I was driven to pray for him. Signed for me one of my very first study Bibles after I got saved. He knows that I believe that practicing the sin of homosexuality will exclude him from the kingdom of heaven, and he is deeply disappointed in me. The other three still deal with varying temptations of what feels like the them, very natural desires. Two of them have married and had children, and the others has uh, chosen to remain single and works for a ministry that helps people who have sexual addictions. You see, beloved, this is a tale, this one I'm telling you now, of two practices. Three of these have struggled and failed by giving in to their sin over the years, but they have not made it their, listen here, practice. They always return to loving. They always return to serving the Lord. The other, although I am no longer in contact, no doubt, found a church that would affirm him in his practice of sin. There are plenty of them out there. The difference, you ask, three of them are professed Christians and have the Holy Spirit abiding in them. How do we know? They cannot keep on sinning. They will not practice sin. Even though they have deeply tempted personalities to do this sin, they will not practice it. The other is a professed Christian, goes to a Christian church, but he will not repent and call his sin, sin. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, there are plenty of those professed Christian churches out there who will make him feel comfortable on his way to hell. What's happening in our nation? We are on the same slide as Canada has been on. I would argue it is happening at a much faster pace. There are Christian churches out there who will allow you to live however you would like. There are conservative politicians who are coming alongside with this movement, and it will not be too many days ahead when we will see our own bill before. And upon the preaching of the message I am preaching right now, I will have broken the law, maybe be being put in prison two to five years. Friends, let us not be confused. It is not just the practice of homosexual sin that paves the way to hell. 
See if you can find yourself in any practice of this. Paul told the church in Galatia, not region, this in chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. He said that immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, that's anger, right? Strife, causing division, jealousy for what another Christian may or may not have, outbursts of anger if it's ongoing, disputes if it's ongoing, dissensions if they're ongoing, factions if they're ongoing, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's sobering, right? Flies in the face of our hyper-grace church movement in America. Beloved John, like Jesus and the Apostle Paul is telling us a tale of two practices. And he does not want genuine Christians to be deceived to think that they can continue in present ongoing sin and think that they will inherit the kingdom of God. It could not be any clearer. He reiterates this in verses 7 and 8 and 10, and I'll go through them quickly. It says, little children, make sure no one, here's our word, deceives you. The media is trying to deceive you. The world is trying to deceive you. The church is bought into this by and large. These ideas, they're going to try to deceive you. Little children, it's as if this apostle, right, this aged apostle, (laughs) returns to his attitude about the church. Please, children, when I want to get my son's attention, I often say, son, daughter, please listen to me. Be sure, make sure no one deceives you. That deceives there is an imperative, and so rather than have that semicolon there, you might write in there an exclamation point. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, and just just as he is righteous, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. In verse 10, he sums up this sobering message by saying this, By this, what is this? The tale of two practices. The children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. All present tense, active, indicative verbs. Anyone who is not right now doing these things in an ongoing way, Friends, as we sojourn through this life together, we will have people in our lives, and yes, even ourselves, who will ebb and flow through different sins and struggles. Let us not be a people who are angry when professed Christians sin, but rather love our brothers and sisters well. And by well, that means calling them to repentance from the sin that so easily, listen here, besets all of us. How easy is it to get pulled into Some of these angers, dissensions, factions, envying, 
the Apostle Paul, after warning the, of the fruits of the flesh and telling of the fruits of the Spirit, finishes up his thought about those who are on two different practicing paths. He wrote this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, and I, hear that, I pray that we hear the heart of this. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Think of the humility of that statement. We're going to struggle. We're going to get hung up in sin. We're going to go down a wrong path. We're going to do the wrong thing, right? But those of us who are in a good place, don't get, don't get prideful, <laughs> lest you too be tempted and fall. Go to that brother, go to that sister, go to that son, go to that daughter, and in gentleness, in gentleness, call them back. Amen? Verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Bear them. Somebody's struggling in sin and falling away, and you are, you are appalled by that which they are doing. Bear the burden. Pray for them. And fulfill the law of Christ, right? Loving enemies. Beloved, eternity with God is a tale of two practices, the practice of sin and the practice of righteousness. There are many churches in Canada this morning doing as Peter and John did in the book of Acts. They'll remember that they were pulled in right away. I think it's probably in Acts chapter 3 or 4 there. And they were told not to preach in the name of Jesus. And they said, as for us, right, we must obey God over the man. Many churches this morning in Canada are making that decision. I fear to say that Unless we have some major shift in the direction, we will be right in their shoes in a number of years. Having the world tell us we must practice their sin. They are saying that God has said, and what God has said about marriage, gender, and sexuality mean nothing. In short, they are warning, these pastors are warning this morning as we speak, as we preach, as we talk about this and the freedom that we currently have and they have just lost. They are warning their country and those professing Christians that the difference between eternity in heaven and eternity in hell is the difference in how people practice their lives. I pray that as we continue forward, we would be lifting them up, praying for them, paying attention. Might have to be another question we ask of our conservative politicians. What is your view on marriage? It will certainly be the wave of judgment that is coming at us. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning and and since the weightiness of what John is saying here, certainly there are those uh, who have been unsettled by that which you have said in your word here in First John. I pray, Lord, that as each one of us considers, are we practicing sinners or are we practicing asking, Lord, for your great grace and mercy?
Lord, we lift up those in Canada this morning, and, and we pray, Lord, we know that they are really just entering in a time that all Christians from the get-go have been in, and we don't necessarily celebrate that, Lord, but we pray that through this trial that the church would explode, that those who are professing Christians but aren't actually, Lord, would be weeded out, and those who are those who have your spirit in them would be identified, and many people would run to the well of life that springs forth from your word in those churches, Lord, who are willing to teach what you have said about human sexuality. We pray for them, Lord. We ask that you give them boldness and courage, and Lord, we pray for us as we see that we are on the same highway. Give us wisdom on how to love each other when we struggle with sin, that we might be a picture of that which we just read in Galatians 1, Galatians 6. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, all God's people say.